Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Sophie. Welcome back to our weekly podcast. Hope everyone is doing fine. Last week, we had a really interesting podcast on the topic and better understanding of the word and meaning of risk in our lives in general and individually. We talked about how we perceive risk. Is it based only on data and statistics, or is it based on how we've experienced life in the past and what that has done and shaped and how it shaped us, or is it really just a feeling about how we feel about something that may pose a risk? We also learned about how to individualize our risks for ourselves to know really what is a risk to us based historically on our experiences and what we've learned and what we've been taught. Also, how we perceive the past and was it a risk or not will dictate going forward if it was a good experience or not. And then also for parents to be able to balance for their children trying to do the teaching and the role modeling and the sometimes boring lecturing of telling a child and teaching a child what is a risk versus letting them live life and find out by experience. So we've all come up with that it needs to be a balance for parents. So when they're really doing their thing with their kids, it's about experience balanced with having you pull and you show and push what you feel needs to happen. So anyway, listen to all my podcasts, get on my website, iTunes has them all, or my website at www.drsophie.com. Perceived Risks was our, was our last topic, and it was very interesting, but they're all on there from the many, many times we've done these on www.drsophie.com or on iTunes. This week, we're talking about a very interesting topic because you'll see it all over the news all the time in many different ways, and that is the topic of someone who is antisocial. And is that really a disorder? Is that just really a way to be? Is that what a criminal is? Does that mean that's just somebody who doesn't like society and isn't friendly? We're going to learn all about antisocial aspects of a personality and what does it all mean and how does it all add up to somebody who sometimes ends up in jail. So we're going to learn that. We're going to learn the differences between that kind of antisocial behavior and a psychopath. What does really that word mean? We hear it all the time. And does lying exist? And it should it, is it always a part of both or one of these kinds of personality makeups? Does a person who's lying always become one of these? Or are they all intertwined? We're going to learn about that. And then you're going to get your takeaways. But we're not going to do this alone. We're going to do it with a really great and well-versed expert, Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole. She is spending a lot of her career studying the criminal mind, one of the most senior profiles for the FBI until her retirement in 2009. Like, she's probably got a ton of really interesting stories. So we're going to hear them all. I hopefully will get to some of them today, but I want to hear them all. And I think that she's got a book that's going to tell us a lot of that stuff, too. Dr. O'Toole, are you with us? I sure am. Good evening. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. Where are you at? Uh, I'm back in Virginia. Ah, oh, very nice. It's that's why it's evening. Yeah, that's why it's evening, and that's why it's cold and and snowy and and wet and uh, all the good things associated with the East Coast right now. Ah, well, it's hot and sunny here. Thank you for you're sharing welcome. That. <laughs> Take some of it. I'm pushing it through for you. So, so good. Okay, I'm feeling the good, warm vibe. Good job. Tell us a little bit about you and kind of how you got into this, and then we'll go on. Sure. Um, I was an FBI agent for 28 years, and for nearly half of that time, I was what is known as an FBI uh, profiler, mm. and that's how I retired as one of the FBI senior profilers from the uh, well-known BAU, or Behavioral Analysis Unit, which is the focus of TV programs like Criminal Minds and um, The Profiler and, and, and other shows and movies. 
it's nothing like in the real world. It's it's nothing like it's portrayed on, yeah. on TV. But part of the work that that I did was to specialize in this whole area of psychopathy because it it it's number one. It's considered the um, probably the leading concept in the 21st century for law enforcement. And and psychopaths are um, people that law enforcement deal with on a more regular basis, more so than psychiatrists, mental health, or uh, medical professionals because of their uh, propensity to get involved in criminal behavior. And because they are such a challenge, uh, these are the people that are classically known as individuals without a conscience. Ah, okay. And so is, is, is this psychopath thing, because it bypasses mental health and it really is more a criminal thing, well, not really. Um, and just a short breakdown for your audience. About 1% of the general population is considered to be um, psychopathic or have the 20 traits. Most psychopaths are not violent. However, uh, psychopaths do live on the edge of life because of, of their personality makeup. When they are violent, because they lack empathy for their victims and they have no guilt for what they do, you can see where basically the world is kind of their oyster and they can do um, um, whatever they want and they don't have this haunting little guilty voice in the yeah. back of their head saying you shouldn't mm. have done that or what you're about to do um, is wrong, so reconsider your actions. They don't have that, and they don't worry that they don't have that either. And so tell me, you said something about that 1% of the population is a psychopath, but you said the 20 points? There are 20 traits and characteristics associated with this personality disorder. Um, and one of those 20 traits, for example, is pathological lying. And that's not to say that um, everyone who is a pathological liar, which means someone who lies about everything, it's not to say that everyone who, who lies to that degree is a, is a psychopath, but if you look at it from the reverse, psychopaths do have that um, do have that trait and so what I tell my classes is this if you're sitting down with someone who you believe is psychopathic and has um, many if not all the traits of psychopathy don't kid yourself by saying but I don't think they're a liar they're just so charming and so yeah. coming across so believably and so empathically I just I just don't believe what Mary Ellen says. I, I just don't think that they're a liar. They may be the other traits, but I don't think they're a liar. Then you're being duped. And that's because you're being duped, bottom line. They're really good at it, right? Oh, they're excellent actors. So tell me, what's the difference then, then with a sociopath? Well, that's a great question. The term sociopath is a term that was used back in the 60s and 70s by mental health, and it was included in the mental health uh, Bible the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which, um, as, as many of your folks will know, is, is the book that mental health uses if, when you go in um, for some kind of um, treatment. They can look up your symptoms in this book right. and, and give you kind of a, a, a name to what it is that, that you have. That word was actually thrown out and discarded back about 25-plus uh, years ago. And the current research that's been done now on um, these individuals referred to currently as psychopaths um, has been done in, in the laboratory. It's all empirical, but it is entitled 
psychopathy. And here's the difference with, uh, between a psychopath and a sociopath and someone who's antisocial. The psychopath can engage in antisocial behavior. They don't necessarily have to. Antisocial behavior means um, a criminal behavior out, you know, stealing cars or doing, you know, selling drugs right. or, you know, robbing a 7-Eleven store. And there, there are um, many psychopaths who don't have that in their background. Ah. But with an antisocial, even if they're out breaking the law, they still can have those kinds of emotions like empathy and compassion, maybe to a lesser extent than you and I have them, but they can still have some semblance of a conscience. And maybe through their upbringing, maybe they grew up in a gang-related family or they grew up in a, uh, um, you know, a culture where there was a lot of um, drug influence and, and involvement in drug activity, that they learned how to be antisocial. But when you scrape that away, you still have um, someone that has the ability to empathize and care about other humans, but they were indoctrinated in a criminal upbringing. That's not the case with psychopathy. Um, they're... they're affective parts of their personality, which means their emotions, right. but how they feel, um, it's just their, their emotions are very, um, they're what we call prototypical, they're very flat, so they don't feel emotions like you and I feel, like love and um, emotional connection to other people. They pretend like they do because they know they have to uh, um, come across as having those things in order, in order to dupe us. But they really don't have it, and that's not that's not applicable to the sociopath. Again, an outdated term, or uh, a term that still uses um, antisocial personality disorder or right. APD. Those folks can have the some feeling of empathy and compassion, and those really are traits that make us human. Got it. Okay, let's take a caller. Hey, Amanda, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. You're on with myself and Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole, a former FBI agent. Hi. Well, you know, I had a question um, for you. I know you were just explaining sort of the difference between a, a psychopath and a sociopath. Um, but I sort of, I wonder with all these sort of horrible things that are going on in the world right now, you know, media tends to shine a light on these, um, on these, you know, choice words. Yeah. And, um, and so the difference has been made. Thank you uh, for that just recently. But, um, my, my question is, does a sociopath, you know, or, or someone generally defined in that term, do they, do they know that they can't feel empathy and all these things? Do they, are they aware of that? Or is it sort of just like a, you know, they're flying blind? Um, good question. They're not flying blind. It's not something that they stop and think about. They're not concerned about a lack of empathy. They don't. They know that um, there's a sense of arrogance. That's one of the traits is grandiosity with um, about psychopaths. That's one of the twenty. So they think that they are um, better, smarter um, uh, than than you and I. They don't worry about not having empathy. And I can even take that further. When they see empathy in other people, when they see you. And, and I um, showing love and caring and concern for other people or um, other people's situations in life, they see that as a weakness, as a vulnerable spot for us, and they can come after us um, based on that. So when you hear about crimes like um, 
someone going around the country, a serial killer, or you hear about a white-collar um, psychopath who's going after retired people's pensions, and you hear the word predator, yeah. which is a very important word for a profiler. A predator means you're out hunting human beings. And part of what a psychopath does, because they lack empathy, is they will spot people who they can, they can manipulate and control, and they can um, almost exploit their empathy and get at them that way. It's called hunting humans, and to be able to do that, you have to um, almost lack that empathy and that sense of remorse for other people. Otherwise, you couldn't be out hunting them. So they take people in, that are vulnerable and they go at them. They do. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you very much. Does that help, Amanda? It does, definitely, yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Okay. So, Dr. Ochoa, I have a question for you. Sure. Do you think then, or from your experience, what would you say this pathology, whether it's antisocial personality issues or psychopathy, is genetics or is it more environmentally induced? Is it combination? What do you think? It, research suggests it's um, it's a combination that um, it does have a genetic link to it. And to take it one step further, if we're talking about someone who's um, it, psychopathy is dimensional, which means you're not either or. Like blood pressure, we all have it. At some point, if you have most of the traits of psychopathy, you're going to be um, an individual with psychopathic traits. So once you get into having um, you know, most of these traits, um, on the test for psychopathy, a perfect score is 40. If you're in the high 20s on that test, you would be um, psychopathic. But most likely that genetic link for you and psychopathy is, is going to be less than, say, a sexually deviant psychopath, say, like the Green River Killer, who um, admitted to killing 49 women in one county in one state. Wow. He's sexually deviant, plus he's psychopathic. He would score higher on that 40-point test than, say, someone who is a white-collar psychopath who lacks remorse for his victims, but he, he does not have any, any kind of a sexual deviancy. All right, so you say it's a combo of both. It's genetics. a combo, but if you and I are both psychopaths, you may, be, uh, you may get your psychopathy 40% from your genetics, 60% from my how you were raised, and I may get my psychopathy 70% from my genetics and 30% from um, how I was raised. However, you're more likely to be a psychopath you know, I know you don't want to know that. Yeah. More likely to be one because uh, right now because um, most men are, are psychopaths, not women. So that's the that's the gender ratio you're saying? Yeah. Well, the gender ratio is that right now we believe that there are more men who are psychopathic. But part of that reason, part of the basis for that statement is that most of the empirical research done so far on this disorder has been done on a male population. Well, let's do it on the females. That's not fair. Well, I'll tell you something. <laughs> we have our own issues, that's for sure. And yeah. we have other personality disorders uh, that are very close to psychopathy that have a lot of the same traits and characteristics. And that's called the borderline personality yes. disorder. And most individuals diagnosed with that are, are females. So believe me, we're not, we're not letting the women off the hook here. And what about antisocial personality disorder? Would you say more genetic, more environmental, again, combo? Well, we can't say because the empirical research has not been done on that disorder, which is why, as an expert, if I go to court and talk about 
um, there's a genetic influence, here are the 20 traits, I then cannot conclude, therefore this individual is antisocial, uh, is, is an antisocial personality, because an attorney is going to say, well, the research has been done on the term psychopath, not on the term antisocial. So that's why, I mean, it's splitting hairs, but not for those of us who work in the field. So I don't know. Um, I'll say it to you differently. Most antisocial personality disordered individuals are not psychopaths. So therefore, then the conclusion is a lot of those individuals diagnosed with antisocial, um, that their behavior um, is less likely to probably be genetic. Got it. Okay. And then one really quick thing, then we're going to take a, uh, a email I got. Per antisocial personality disorder, can it just be that you have those traits or do you actually have to have the disorder? Um, well, I would tell your folks in the audience, keep antisocial personality disorder as a, as a separate disorder. It's right. not one based on research. It's one based more on anecdotal information. So, um, is it caused by a combination of genetics and, and nurturing? We don't know because there has not been bodies of empirical research that have been done on it. So what we, just t what we tell people is keep those diagnoses separate. If you want to be technically correct, right. a psychopath is the only diagnosis that has been studied empirically for more than 40 years. So, when we, so we're able to speak with a great deal of confidence in terms of what causes it how it manifests itself and what the implications are. We cannot do that reliably um, with antisocial personality disorder. Okay, got it. Okay, Ben from D.C. is asking us, is it dangerous to have someone who suffers from an antisocial personality disorder as a roommate? Well, I'd have to know more about that. Um, if, you, if someone has uh, acted out towards you in a dangerous way, if, if someone has um, if they've hurt other people, if they've um, used violence in their interactions, if they have anger management issues, um, then it may not, it, it probably isn't good to have them as a roommate. But I would say this also, labels matter and words make a difference. And I hear people throw around terms like, oh, he's a psychopath or he's an antisocial. And you want to be very careful because I don't know who gave your roommate that diagnosis. And it's a serious one if, if, if it was a reliable mental health professional, in which case you may want to think about getting another roommate. But those are, those are questions that I just don't know the answer to, and, and your listener would want to check that out. Okay. Labels matter, and words make a difference. So be very careful in taking things at, at um, you know, face value. Right. Got it. Okay. Now we have another um, email I want to read. It's Morgan from Atlanta. She's asking, does a sociopath know that they are a sociopath or at least that something isn't kind of right about them? Well, again, I would, I would, and I I would, would suggest to people we not use the term sociopath. Yeah, we could go to psychopath. Like saying, Did you come to, to the interview today in a motor car? Right. People would say, what the heck are you talking about? You mean a, a car? So leave the term sociopath. It stopped existing 30 years ago. Let's use the term psychopath. And what you're asking is that do people realize that they have these traits? Um, my experience with psychopaths is that they're not particularly insightful, but um, they're very 
let me give you some examples. They're very glib and charming people. They would light up a room when they walk in. They're thrill seekers. They love to engage in activities that are exciting for them. They're highly impulsive. They're very grandiose. They're pathological liars. They don't sit back and ruminate over these 20 traits that they have because they really do think the world revolves around them and it's all about them. And so if you have that mindset and that outlook on life, you don't second guess that you're not such a great individual. They're, they're good with themselves. Got they're it. really good with themselves. And they're master manipulators of other people. And even if they hurt you financially, emotionally, or physically, they walk away and they don't take responsibility. So these are not people that do a lot of self-reflection. And they're not people you want to have over for dinner. Well, you may want to have them over for dinner, but I'd put away the valuables, not give them a key, and certainly you wouldn't want to be in a close, ongoing, interpersonal relationship with them, in my opinion. Okay, let's take a voicemail. Hi, Dr. Sophie. My name is Jeremy. Uh, I'm calling because I recently read the book called The Sociopath Next Door, and um, ever since reading it, I've become almost paranoid and uh, begun turning a suspicious eye on uh, many of my friends and family members. And uh, I'm wondering, you know, how realistic is it that one out of 25 is actually a sociopath? Because if that's the case, then I'm sure that at least one, if not several, of my friends and family members must be sociopaths. And uh, if that is the case, how can I identify them uh, with certainty? And, and if I am able to do so, it's what do I do at that point? I'm not really sure. And my last question, really, is just to cover my bases. How, I don't think I am, but how do I know that I'm not a sociopath uh, myself? So if you could answer those questions, I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you. So let's go with psychopath is the word, all right? Okay. All right, so we'll what do you think? Psychopath is the word, and um, I don't know where the number one out of 25 came from. And, and, and again, because numbers years ago and, and not, so, not so many years ago were just kind of thrown out there. Yeah. Um, so I don't know where that number came from. Dr. Robert Hare, who's considered the world's expert in psychopathy, who's, who's really led the, the um, empirical research effort on this disorder, has estimated that about 1% of the general population have these traits of psychopathy. And that is a general estimate because we have to keep in mind that people that have this personality disorder do not seek out mental health treatment. They're not out of touch with reality, so they're not hearing voices or seeing things that are not there. So it's an estimate, 1% of the general population. There is no way to physically look at somebody and know whether or not they are psychopathic. Psychopaths look just as normal as, as um, you and, and me. Some are well-educated, some less so. Um, they come in all shapes and sizes and races, backgrounds. Some are married, some aren't. So we have to understand that you cannot look at someone and just tell by a physical feature. And what it requires is to be diagnostically pure, you'd have to give them the test, which is the, called the psychopathy checklist revised, but that's not realistic. So what I suggest to people is that, you know, you have to look at people's patterns of behavior over a period of time and see how they treat you and other people over, um, you know, certainly over more than one or two occasions. So you have to see if they, in their behaviors, for example, do they seem to manipulate people? Are they pathological liars? 
Um, do they seem to lack empathy for, for other people around them? It doesn't have to be for um, um, and on something of yeah. a major scale, but do, do they just seem to not have the ability to empathize with other human beings? And psychopaths are notorious for not connecting with other people. So I tell investigators, you can't really build rapport before you go into an interview with them because it's all about them. But the point with your caller is to understand that know the 20 traits, and you're looking for a lifetime pattern of behavior, not just a bad day or an off day, but a lifetime pattern. Okay. And then finally, um, look at the 20 traits, but the one thing I would say is never, self-diagnose, never self-diagnose yourself. You will always be wrong. Um, yeah, because... Look how we do. We are if we go on, on the Internet and we look up a, a physical symptom and we see all these horrific diseases, then it upsets us even more. Absolutely. But if your caller is concerned about being a psychopath, as I tell my classes, if you're worried about being one, you probably aren't one. Because it's right, because you're worrying. Concerned about those traits and characteristics. They think it's a very good thing. Right. I mean, the fact that you're worried about it means you have some empathy or sympathy. Excellent. Yes. All right. So tell me, some. Of, what are some of these other traits, though? Um, they're divided into four categories. So some of the other ones are um, they're glib and charming um, individuals and more extroverted than um, introverted. Um, they're conning and manipulative people, and that's actually a pretty good trait if you want to go into certain professions. Um, uh, certainly, it's some of these traits I'm telling you are, are good for people in a law enforcement um, career. They're grandiose. Even though they may come across as a, um, I've met some psychopaths that are a little bit more reserved than some that are more outgoing, they do think the world revolves around them. So is that narcissism? It's narcissism with an edge. It's Ooh. almost um, a narcissism, but with um, almost an aggressive quality to it. And even though narcissists can be very draining people um, to be around, we all know one, um, they still have the ability to have some degree of empathy for other people. So this is, this is um, narcissism, but with an, almost a cutting edge to it. Got it. Um, they lack empathy. That means the ability to relate to other people. They have no guilt for what they do. And that's pretty stunning when you see someone hurt a partner or a child and walk away and just look at the situation like, well, they had it coming, or hey, they made me do it, or she shouldn't have invested her retirement money in with me. I didn't lose her money. So that lack of empathy is, is really considered almost, it, it's called a, a callous lack of empathy. Okay. Uh, they take no responsibility for their actions. They blame others for what they do and for what happens. Again, they're um, imp- impulsive individuals. They are sensation-seeking sensation individuals. They tend to be parasitic, they, meaning that they live off of others, and not that they're all... Um, um, living like on the street, there are some very wealthy individuals that are parasitic, but they can live off of other people emotionally. Right, right. At their own, ex- at others' expense emotionally. At others' expense. Yeah, okay. I got it. Okay, let's do another voicemail. Hi, Dr. Sophie. Um, I recently found out um, that a good friend of mine had been lying about nearly everything, and I wanted to know if that makes them a pathological liar, and if so, what do I do? 
So thank you so much, and I look forward to hearing your answer. Bye. You know what? I'm sure many people find themselves in these situations. What do you think? If someone is lying to you about you know, about everything, my first question would be, I'd have to know that that's not a good thing, obviously. And, you know, I'd have to know the nature of your relationship with that person. And is it that they are lying over one particular issue, which I doubt, but I'd have to know that the relationship, the nature of that relationship. And here's the, here's the, the litmus test. Depending on, on how close your relationship is with that person, if they've shown you that even over unimportant facts, they cannot and will not tell you the truth, even over things that, that don't make a, um, a difference, you really have to ask yourself, is this somebody that I want in my life for a long time, especially if it involves eventually where the relationship will become deeper or will become more involved in financial commitments or emotional commitments do you really want to have to worry or second guess everything that they've said so um, I would I would certainly stop to think about what it is that you want and you know how much closer do you want to get with with an individual and I think here's one thing that I've, I've seen and I have actually been talking to some people about this today you don't have to have some people in your life you can walk away, and sometimes that's the best answer. I'm not su suggesting that your caller do that at this point, but um, it may become necessary at some point to say, you know what, I just cannot take the risk of letting you into my life anymore, and I have to walk away. And you may not have all the answers just in terms of their other traits and characteristics, but if this one bothers you that much and it, it seems to be so flagrant, that may be an option that you have to consider. Got it. Yeah, that's very important because you do have the ability to walk away. But as you said earlier, a lot of these individuals are very engaging, very charismatic, and they're meeting the needs of people that maybe they haven't gotten that attention in a while. And so it's hard to walk away. But you're suggesting if it kind of smells that way, walking away is a choice that you can make. And, and I would strongly tell people this, and, and maybe this is why my friends look at me and they just they sometimes just say, oh, no, I know what she's going to say. Right, right. You cannot change people. And pe your, your listeners may say, oh, I disagree with that. But I would urge you to just hear me, hear me say this. Our personalities are hardwired by the time we're in our late 20s or in our early 30s. And what that means for all of us is that major changes um, are not going to occur. They're simply not. And so how often do we hear a wife or a husband say, that's not the man I marry. Right. That's not the woman I marry. And yet it is, but we chose to see them differently when we're 20 and 25. So right. I would just simply tell people, especially those of us that are particularly tender-hearted, and maybe some of us who are naive, and I don't, I include myself in that category, um, do not think you can change people after a certain point. Don't put yourself in, into that position that you that that you have the ability to do that. You cannot, and that's why I say sizing it up and and, and maybe walking away from them is your best choice. Got it. Okay. So a couple of questions about you as this FBI profile. What clues do you actually look for? Well, that's number one. I look for patterns of behavior with people. If I meet someone for the first time, um, they could be having a bad day. Something could have happened on their way to work, um, and they're not treating me very nice. Or they're, 
um, you know, they're, they're sort of um, disregarding me or maybe they're putting down someone that I'm with. Uh, maybe we're at a restaurant and they're being very disrespectful. I'm going to notice that, but if this is somebody that's going to be in my life or around me for a while, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and see patterns of behavior over a period of time. But frankly, I'm going to be looking for things that to me are the most important, and those are those traits to show me what kind of a um, emotional kind of operating system that they, they have. have. Okay. Can they be empathic? Can they be kind? Can they have compassion for other people and other living things? And if I'm seeing a deficit of those particularly human traits, I'm not, I, I really will not go any okay. further. I'll do my best not to because at some point I'll be on the receiving end of their, of their harshness, and I don't want that. Okay, so tell me, like, how long do you give somebody that time frame, that timeline of watching and observing? It depends, and it really does depend in terms of what role they'll have in your life. So if, for example, um, you're, and it, if you're having to kind of interview somebody that's going to come over to your home and right. do something inside your home, and they'll be there for a week, um, you've got to know a little bit about them fairly quickly, and then they'll be gone. But um, you still have to know enough about them and who they are um, to know if you're letting someone dangerous into your home or not. If you're just starting a friendship or a relationship with someone, then you have more time to get to know them. But I think what happens oftentimes is when we're, when we're doing interviews with people, like we're hiring a babysitter or a nanny or a painter, we're a little too polite to ask some really... Yeah, yeah. How come? It's embarrassing to ask somebody some of these questions. And, and, and frankly, do you want to know if somebody's um, spent time in prison? I would suggest that, yes, you do. Yeah, you do. You want to know before they're in your house. Yes, but I would also suggest that um, I have friends that have spent time in, in, um, in prison or they've been incarcerated, and they've been rehabilitated. So it's not that they have been, it's that what, what was it that um, caused you to, um, to go to jail or to prison? And, so what, did you, and what did you do after? It's important that if you, if you have been there. Right, but also how did you get yourself together after and what did that look like? Absolutely, that's a great, uh, a great question because, I mean, we all grew up there, but for the grace of God could have gone any one of us. But you also want to know how they have dealt interpersonally with other people in their past because that's the clue to how they're going to deal with you. So if you ask somebody, um, for, hey, are you a team player if you're going to hire somebody? Of course they're going to say, I'm a team right, player. Right. Um, but still you have to ask them, uh, when you've had other jobs and someone has told you in a past job that they didn't like your work, uh, how did you deal with that? If you were, if somebody came back and they saw that, you know, the, the work that they did, you did in their home was just not satisfactory and they, um, they just said they weren't going to pay or they, you know, fired you, I mean, how did you react to that? You're looking for how people have dealt with others in the past and what, you know, what kind of an emotional response did they, did they have to other people, especially when things didn't go their way. And a good gauge if somebody, for example, has anger management issues, you, you can um, ask them about driving. That's a good gauge if somebody has anger management issues. Then the next question is, let's say you're dating somebody and they have anger management issues, which will spill over until they're driving. Do you really want your children driving in a car with them? Well, yeah, or do you want to raise children with these people? 
big deal. Do you really want to raise your children with someone who has anger management issues, and that's part of their personality construct? And, and so early on, you're going to start sniffing out anger management problems in driving or in dating. How? By somebody being explosive and seeing their patterns of behavior? Right, and then being aware of how you respond to it. And I cannot tell you how many times people will look at very dangerous behavior. They'll look it right in the eye, and they'll do one of five things. They'll normalize it, they'll explain it away, they'll rationalize it, or they'll pretend it didn't even exist. But they're looking it right square in the eye, and they'll tell you, you know, Mary Ellen, I saw that in her years ago. I saw that in him when I first met him, but I just figured it would go away, or, and I saw it over and over again, but I just didn't think it would ever come to anything. So I would say when you're looking at something right in the eye, it's important to notice that behavior, but it's equally important to know how, how you respond to it. And if you do have a tendency to rationalize what's going on in other people's behavior, you've got to get on top of that. Okay, so that was normalize? You normalize it, it um, give it a normal explanation, you rationalize it, you explain it away. Right. Um, you ignore it? You ignore it, or the other thing that we do is we give it icon influence that's a fancy way of saying if someone seems to have a really good job or a, an important position in the community or we think that they are somebody important we'll give them the benefit of the doubt and we'll say oh yeah he got mad or she got mad but they're the president of the pta or you know they're a um, um, a man of god or they're um they're the principal of the school so we give people credit for their for who they are and their titles and we tell ourselves they that person can't do anything bad because of who they are so sure i can let my kids go over to their house i don't know him or her that well but they can have a sleepover because you know come on it i mean it is the school principal so yeah i mean sure everything's going to be fine and that's scary because that's exactly you know we see it happening all the time where we're shocked when we find something out about somebody like that. Oh, we're shocked and we're stunned, and then, then it becomes, um, what did we miss? And right. then it becomes right. all of this. Uh, you know, that person has to be crazy. Aren't aren't all of these somewhat forms of denial? Yeah, they are forms of denial. I think, and and then recently with all of the. Um, cases that are on the news, I think, too, then we give it some kind of a diabolical influence that almost makes it out of our power to have done anything about it. Yeah. We'll say, well, they're hmm. crazy or they're evil. You'll hear that term evil used. And, and frankly, um, when we have, or they're a monster, whoever did this was a monster. I mean, those, that kind of thinking, um, terminology and that kind of thinking catapults us back into this, you know, 18th century where, you know, vampires and werewolves committed all these violent acts. So it's almost another way of saying there was just nothing I can do about it because this person was just so almost magically diabolical. Yeah. And it, I've heard that. I mean, I just heard it on the news tonight talking about a case, and the the, the explanation was the person had to be a monster. Really? Right. Got I'm, it. I'm, I mean, I hear it all the time. You're right. Not correct. I, I have to tell you how many times I hear this in divorces as they're going down. And the men who really are or the women who really are psychopathic, you know, the pattern was there all along. The denial was there in various forms. And it's just, you know, you can trace it back to a combination of genetics and environment and how that, that person was parented or not or, 
you know, what their genes are like. So there are red flags to see. It's just important not to ignore them. Oh, it's so important. So and t- if you have children involved in the mix, it's not if the children will be damaged. It's, it's when. They will be damaged. Yeah, it's when. It's when. So tell me, as this FBI profiler in your life, what, what were some of the most interesting observations you think you've seen or made on your job? Well, I think one of the most interesting ones is, and it still is the case, is um, I grew up in the Midwest, and I say that because a lot of people think of us Midwesterners as being a little bit on the naive side, and we Hmm. are, and maybe a little bit on the, I don't know, um, not of worldly experience, and we are, and I treasure that upbringing, but it also has caused me to look at people sometimes, and I've had to tell myself, as an FBI agent, a senior profiler, I've had to tell myself, Mary Ellen, don't forget what you know about these people, because they can be so charming and nice to me, and they can just be so engaging and so unbelievably nice and amazing to talk to that I have to remind myself they're duping you don't let them do that they're manipulating you don't let them do that and they're sitting here in front of you not because they like your your um uh, your personality mary ellen they're sitting here because they're a suspect in you know 49 homicides. right exactly <laughs> so keep in perspective that these um psychopaths are incredible incredible um um charming people they're actors but the reverse they are the reverse of that is always true i've yet to, to run into one i'm i'm Sure, there are. They just haven't told me. But because I come across in a, in a very um, kind of a, almost a simple and naive way, and again, that's probably my upbringing, um, they, they'll tell me things that they would never tell somebody else because I don't judge them when I talk with them. It's not my job, and I really am interested in who they are. The courts will set down the sentence. That's not my job. So just being a good listener and being a non-judging listener has paid off immeasurably over the years. Great. That's really wonderful. No, I mean, the insight you're offering us is, is invaluable. Tell us a little bit about your book and how we can find it and how we can contact you. Oh, thank you. Um, my book is called Dangerous Instincts, How Gut Feelings Can Betray Us. So I would, um, would just want to say to folks, don't let that offend you. What I mean by your gut instincts is that these dangerous people to us can come across in a most disarming way, and we can all be duped by them if they want us to be duped. And so the book is about reading people the right way, and it's actually step-by-step in terms of what to look for and how to assess people and how to assess situations. It's not just the person, but it's the situation you're in with that person. And then I also talk with people about um, how you interview people. Now, I know your listeners probably are not going to interview a serial killer, but they do interviews all day long. Well, they're interviewing. They're extracting information from people. Yeah. But oftentimes, we just, we do it with one eye closed and one arm behind our back, and we don't realize why it is we're doing that. So I walk them through sizing up on their own. Are you a good listener or not? And if you're not, here's how to improve. And then here are ways and, and to go about extracting information from people, whether it's the painter who wants to work for you, uh, for, you for a week or if it's your child. Or the guy you're going to date or the woman you're going to date. That's right. Or a spouse that looks across from the table and says, nope, I'm not having an affair. You're right. It's, it's all of that in between and how you can improve your interview skills. And, and frankly, we can always 
all of us improve those skills. Absolutely, and not ignore those red flags. Not ignore them. Dr. Mary, Mary Ellen O'Toole, thank you so much for such huge amounts of expertise and insight. Really appreciate it. Your book, Dangerous Instincts, How to Gut Feelings Betray Us, it's really telling us about really looking at other people and looking at them in the right way, learning better interview techniques, and really seeing red flags so that we can make better decisions. But I think you have a tremendous amount of history. You've got to write another book on just the experiences that you've had. They're, un they're unbelievably invaluable to all of us. Well, thank you. You're very kind. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank, thank you, you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Wow. So that was Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole. She is a uh, retired profiler from the FBI. Tons and tons of great experience and great information for us to learn about that lovely topic of psychopathy, psychopathology. She taught us a lot of things. I think the four keys I want you to take away today are number one is really we can do away with the antisocial personality disorder words and thinking because it's really all about psychopaths and psychopathy. And uh, it's really based on a lot of research that's been done under the psychopathic umbrella. There hasn't been much or any done on the antisocial piece. And we also learned today that about 1% of the population does have this uh, psychopathic uh, trait, behavior, whatever you want to call it. It is more male than female. But a lot of that is not because boys are always bad. It's because there's not a lot of research. The other thing I want you to learn about in this whole process is that it is a combination of genetics and the environment and the parenting and the experiences of our children as they grow and where they'll land as far as having psychopathology and psychopathy and becoming psychopaths. So really it's important about how we parent the environment we parent our children in, but also really being self-aware of our genetics and the ways that they will come out as we grow. So it's important. There are patterns of behaviors in psycho uh, psychopaths that we can take a look at. There's checklists from the mental health and the criminal justice perspective to be able to diagnose these kinds of behaviors. There's 20 traits that really go into what a psychopath is. So if you want to learn more, email me, ask me, Google it, but it's all out there. It's pretty well standardized to be able to explain it. The third thing I think we learned today that was very important is labels matter words make a difference so don't take everything somebody tells you at face value because really what they're telling you could be really not true and even though it's coming across in a great way and it's very charming and it's very engaging and charismatic it doesn't really work all the time and it doesn't mean it's always true so labels matter words make a difference very important kind of thing to think about and then the other uh fourth thing that i think is important to take away is we do not we do have the ability to have somebody in our life or not. So if you're really sitting there and you're getting to know somebody, either as a boyfriend, as a girlfriend, or as Dr. O'Toole says, the painter that's going to come over and help you, or whatever role they're going to play in your life, and you're getting that feeling of them that they may have some psychopathic ways about them, and of course you didn't do that 20 checklist behavior checklist with them, you have the option to have people in your life or not. So you can just say, you know what, I don't want that kind of person in my life because I can walk away. So really see that stuff ahead of time. And if you see a red flag, it's probably a red flag. But we also learned that when we see those red flags and we may want to stay in denial and that might be you're I'm still attracted to that guy or I'm still attracted to that girl. We do certain things, Dr. Otru tells us. One is that we will normalize it and say, ah, it's not a big deal, or we'll explain it away, or they're having a bad day, or we'll rationalize it, or we'll basically sometimes just ignore it. 
And sometimes we'll say, ah, no, they couldn't be doing that. They're the principal of the school or they're the pastor of the church or they're the leader of whatever. And we kind of do this icon influence, it's called, where we explain all of these behaviors and red flags away. But the bottom line we learned today is don't ignore the red flags because they're going to come up again. And I can tell you that from experience in the many divorces and the many uh, conflicts I deal with on a daily basis, everybody invariably says, you know what, I saw that behavior 20 years ago and I ignored it. So, you know, if you see a red flag, really jump on it. It means something because we are hardwired and it's really set in its ways by our mid-20s and things aren't going to change, people aren't going to change, and none of us have the power to change others. So if you see it, you got to deal with it. That's our podcast for today on a very, very interesting topic, psychopathology and kind of the makings of it. So take it for what it's worth. I think it's really stuff we should learn about. It will really influence the way you interview, the way you make friends, the way you feel about people when you're around them, their behaviors, all of those kinds of things. Because at the end of the day, we're individuals, we have freedom, and we don't have to have somebody in our life if they're not working for us in a way that makes us feel safe and comfortable. Thank you for listening. Thank you for calling in. All of the voicemails, all of your emails, they really mean a lot to me and they really enhance our program and give us really different and great perspectives to be able to think and answer and learn together as a community. All of the podcasts that I do are available on my website at www.drsophie.com and on iTunes. Also, my new phone app is available in iTunes as well. It's in the App Store. Go grab it. It's free. It's got a ton of great stuff on it. I'm always available to you at one eight five five sophie now or one eight five five seven six seven four nine six six. The title of my book, Side by Side, The Revolutionary Mother-Daughter Conflict-Free Program for Communication. You got to get it so you're not fighting with your mama. Ask my, uh, any question you want, whatever you need. I'm on Twitter and on Facebook. You'll learn about updates as well on Twitter and Facebook. Visit iTunes to download the full version of Andy Grammer's Keep Your Head Up. And the most important thing is don't forget to sweep. But you gotta keep your head up, oh, and you can let your head